0: Last week, we began this two-part journey through the story of Joseph. You can go ahead and, and turn your Bibles to Genesis 37, and then just kind of leave it open while I say some introductory remarks. We said last week, kind of the context to our sermon series, this 2 part sermon series, is that if there's one non-negotiable thing in life, it's that there is going to be interruptions. We could try and manage them out of our lives. We can try. By the way, how many? How many of you in here are could consider yourself kind of control freaks? Anybody? Okay. Try and manage interruptions out of our lives. We have a plan. We have a schedule. You know, on Facebook this week, I'm not going to mention any names, but somebody said, "I'm trying to manage my life for the next 18 months," and I was kind of, you know, I was. Uh, and mildly entertained by that because that's our attitude, right? I'm going to try and manage my life for the next 18 months. You know, it's natural, it's normal, we do that. But one of the that's non-negotiable about life is that interruptions come crashing in. And why I said this last week, when interruptions come, we primarily ask two questions. Do you remember what they were? We ask, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening, okay? Why now? Why, why, why to me? And another the thing, of course, we ask is, how long we want the interruptions to be as short as painless as pain-free as possible so we ask why and how long or when is it going to stop but the scripture reminds us two things that kind of gives us a framework to perhaps ask different questions you guys and that is this number one we live in a world we forget christians but remember we live in a world that's fallen theological language it's still feeling and reeling from the effects of sin. So there is death. There is disease. We live in a world that's fallen in the sense that it's also made up of sinners as well. And so, yes, there are going to be things that other people will do in lines of evil and injustice. That create chaos and interruptions that come into our lives, that we, as much as we try to manage, will inevitably at some point come and disrupt our plans. The other thing that we need to remember, though, is not only disruptions come because of the fallen world that we live in, but also the nature of Christianity is disruptive. I know that for some of you guys, I don't know what you signed on to. Maybe when you thought, you know, if I become a Christian, Christian life is about, and even the terminology, I thought about this this week, you know, we say, I invited Christ into my life. And we kind of know what that means, but you know what we eventually do? It's kind of like this, Jesus, I invite you into my life, meaning, okay, I invite you into my plans, my schedule, and the things that I sort of want to do. You know, and Jesus and me side by side, co-piloting this thing. And I told you guys many times, I really don't like that footprints poem because it totally miscues the Christian life. Christian life is not about me walking side by side with Jesus. And then when it gets really hard, you know, he sort of picks me up and there is not a single thing we can do apart from Christ. There's not a single thing in our lives where we can say to God, God, I got this. Okay, I got this. When I need you, I'm going, can, there's not a single thing, moment, second in our lives when we can say, I got this. Amen? No. Christian life seems disruptive and is disruptive to us because when we accept Christ into our lives, what we're saying is, God, I'm not inviting you into my plans. No, no, no. I'm invite. You're inviting me into your plans. I don't want you to come and join my life. I want to figure out how do I come and join your life. And some of y'all just walked away from the faith or struggle with Christianity because your perspective on the Christian life is, God, I want you to come help me manage my little kingdom. And Jesus says, I don't play that. I'll come and help you manage your kingdom. When I came into your life, I not only became Savior, but I became your Lord. And you submit and seal and surrender everything that you are and have to me. So as we're going along managing our lives, Jesus comes along and says, Oh, no, it doesn't work that way. And we don't respond well, do we? Hence this sermon series. (laughs) If we responded well to interruptions in our lives, I wouldn't be talking about this, but I'm just like you. When interruptions come, why? How long? And I don't ask the right questions. So what if we uh, got to a point where we expected interruptions? Do you ever think about that? What if we just went about each day expecting that there will be interruptions? Now, I'm not saying we turn into one of those people that are like, God, I like pain. I like pain. So my life is a little too comfortable right now, so I invite some pain into my life, please. Because here's the thing. You don't have to ask. It's going to happen, number one. <laughs> and secondly, we expect it because we say, I live in a fallen world that's being redeemed filled with sinners, and it's going to, at times, wreak havoc into my life. And secondly, Christian life by nature is disruptive. And so as I'm going along, God has plans for me that I'm not even fathoming imagining. God has plans for me. I think I've got a great thing going on here. I've got a great deal. This life that i plan for myself cannot be any better. And yet God, in sovereign wisdom, says you have no idea what it is that you think you want. I've got a plan, purpose for you that's beyond what you could even imagine. What if we expected interruptions to happen, and believe that no matter what happens, that God is working in spite of those interruptions to bring glory to Himself, good to us, and salvation of many lives? And secondly, what if we not no, just expected it, but what if we embrace the interruption? What if we embrace, I mean, what do I mean? You're saying, you know, what what do you mean embrace interruptions? No, I I don't mean that you turn into one of those fake people, you know. I talked about my flight being canceled uh, last week. when, when, When cancellations come, I don't expect you to become fake people that goes, oh, my flight's been canceled. Well, praise the Lord. Let's go to the coffee shop and have a Bible study. No, 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 we don't turn into, no, don't become all strange on us. You know what I mean? Nobody likes that. Don't become all strange and weird on us, like hyper, super spiritual. No, when I say embrace it, what if, when interruptions come, it's as it's, if it's we recognize I'm not in control. I thought I was in control, but now I know I'm not in control. I can't fly that plane. I can't back that sucker out from the, you know, the gate. I think I could. I've seen movies and television, you know, just kind of get on the cockpit and do one of those things. I can't. And we're reminded over and over again we are not in control. We never was. We never will be. And yet, in spite of it all, God is at work. Can you imagine how strong you would be if you believe that? you imagine how strong you and i will be if we really believe that despite the interruptions that it will not stop god from doing what he desires to accomplish his will to glorify himself good to us and saving of many lives think of how strong we would be As a summary of last week here's a two sort of overarching things we said that interruptions god is doing something in us and god is doing something through us And we believe that we ask these four questions. They'll come up again, but I want you to make mental note. What if instead of asking why and how, we asked, God, what do you want to do in me in the middle of this interruption? What if that became our posture? God, what do you want to do in me during this interruption? Two, God, who do you want me to meet in the middle of interruption? Almost always, almost always, it's been my case, I think a lot of people, almost always during interruptions, God somehow opens our eyes to meet people who need to encounter God that you would never encounter had it not been for the interruption. Some of y'all met your spouses that way. Three. God, is there something you want me to do in the midst of this interruption? And four, God, how can you be glorified in the midst of this interruption? I said last week, though, sometimes realizing those truths isn't enough and we need a reminder of this overarching truth of Scripture, and that is that God not only does something in us, through us, but God walks with us. God walks with us. You know, as I thought about Olive Hope and why it's so important that there be people with them. Because a lot of times, I'll tell you, if you're not a Christian, you ask Christians, can you tell me why suffering and evil? The most honest answer for all of those of us is what we don't know. I don't know. Christians get used to saying that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. I know where God is. I know where God is. I know the answer to that. And that is he is with us. God is with us. Bible teaches again and again, God's way is to walk with us through the difficult interruptions of life, doing something in us and doing something through us to reach the world. There's no other Bible story that captures this better than the story of Joseph. How many of y'all know the story of Joseph? Familiar with the story of Joseph? Okay, most of us. Story of Joseph. There's somebody that just raised his hand. Joseph? Yeah, I know Joseph. Joseph is something that's someone that's very familiar to many of us. But hopefully, as we look at his story, this overarching theme that we've been talking about will come through. Here's just a brief summary of his, uh, of his family story, and then we'll kind of dig in. This, of course, is a family that God's going to uh, continue his promise that he made to Abraham, which is to bless all the world. Uh, I, uh, Abraham has a son, and the son's name is? Sunday school, folks, his name is Isaac, and Isaac has two sons, and their names are Jacob and Esau, right? And then Jacob has 12 sons, and their names are, ah, uh, that's a little harder, I know, okay, that's a little harder. I don't really know them by memory either. So anyway, he has 12 sons, but one of them's name is Joseph. Here's the deal, and we're going to dig into this today, okay? Joseph is hated by his brothers, and is totally uh, 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 the object of their hatred. As a result, they sell him into slavery instead of killing him. They sell him into slavery. And as a result being sold into slavery, Joseph winds winds up in Egypt, of course. And in Egypt, he gets accused of a number of things, number of things, including rape and so on and so forth. And he languishes in prison. Finally, God orchestrates different events such a way that Joseph comes out of prison as a result of interpreting the dream for the most powerful man in Egypt, the Pharaoh. And as a result of interpreting that dream, Joseph rises to become the second. The second most powerful man in Egypt. And here's the thing you need to know. We're going to see the end of this. As a result of rising up to be the second most powerful man in Egypt, Joseph becomes put in a position to not only save his family, the nation of Israel, the entire region, known world at the time, but also he's able to carry out the messianic line. Because of the various events, and we're going to see in chapter 37, events that happen in Joseph's life, Joseph winds up being put in a place that he never had even dreamed of, being put in a place where God uses him. Genesis chapter 50, take you to the very end of this. But Joseph says to them, those are his brothers, and we'll see why he says this as we dig into Genesis 37. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You, my brothers, intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done. He's literally saying, God turned into good what you meant for evil, the saving of many lives. How does Joseph end up here? How does he end up saying this phenomenal, incredible, unbelievable thing to a group of brothers that betray him? The story begins in Genesis 37. So that's where we turn. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 37. This is the Khan of Jacob. I'm going to kind of read this passage. Uh, By the way, I'm going to read really fast because of time. Okay? If you think I talk fast, wait till you hear me read. Okay? We're going to go right through it, and then we'll come back and hit on some of these things. This is the Khan of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, sons of Zilpah, and he brought their father, a bad report about them. Now, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I, your brothers, actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? Verse 17. They moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dolphin. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dolphin. But when they saw them in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Jump down to verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. As they sat down to eat their meal... They took, looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Verse 28. So when the Midianites merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver. How's God at work in and through Joseph. This story, for, for us to begin, and I'm going to do kind of a, 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 a revision for some of us that might be used to this story. Joseph grew up in a family, and I want you to understand Joseph's family. We've got to go back to Jacob. Do you guys remember Jacob? I actually preached on this sermon series, four-week sermon series during the summer. Jacob grew up desperately lacking the love and attention of his father Isaac. Do you remember that? Because Isaac loved who? Esau more than he did Jacob. And so, because Isaac prefers his older brother Esau, the resulting neediness in Jacob's life, Jacob does something that many of us, frankly, do. By the way, these Bible stories, as much as some of us, they've been, we learned them a while back, and we just kind of have this, you know, caricature of these biblical stories, when in fact, you really look at the Bible stories, and there's so much relevance to things that we could relate to. The resulting neediness in Jacob, because he lacked the love of his father, is he then began to focus his attention on who? On Rachel. His wife, the love of his wife. Jacob functions. You read this story in the background pers- from this perspective of I've longed and lacked for this love from my father, which he is giving me because he's giving it to Esau. So he focuses and fixes his love on his wife, Rachel. He basically looks at his wife, waitra, and says, if I have her, everything will be okay. The problem, of course, is that Rachel dies at a young age and leaves him two sons from that marriage and they are joseph and benjamin so then jacob loses the most precious thing in his life and what does he do he fixates his love and his attention on who joseph does this sound like a relatable story to anybody (laughs) this is so human and real some of you are saying that's my life man Jacob, Joseph, longs for love of his father. Jacob doesn't get it. Fixes it on Rachel, and then because and then Rachel passes away, and this enormous vacuum in his heart, he fixes it on Joseph. And by the way, parents, if you want to wreck your children, do what Jacob does. Jacob lives his entire life from the perspective of Joseph is my identity. Joseph is the reason why I am a good father. Joseph, Joseph Joseph is the reason why I can live. Joseph is the reason why I am a good person. By the way, some of your children are going, that's what my parents have done with me. I meet parents whose lives feel meaningless. And the reason is because they've put all of their hopes and dreams in their children. And when their children disappoint them, what happens? Of course, your life is going to feel meaningless. By the way, some of you guys relate to this. Asian families. This is why Asian parents go around saying, where does your child go to college? My child goes to Harvard. Oh, Harvard. Uh, where does your child go to? You don't need to know. What does your child do? Oh, he's a doctor. He's a lawyer. And you, as a child, growing up hearing this, and you hate it because you know what's going on. Your parents are placing their hopes and their dreams and their wishes on you. And so there's enormous pressure on you. And when you don't turn out well, it's like the lies fall apart. Jacob. Joseph. Jacob fixes his entire identity on Joseph. And as a result, it's poisoning his entire family. By the way, some of you sitting there going, that's not the Joseph I grew up with. Let me show you the Joseph that's in the Bible. Okay, Look at Joseph at age 17. Okay, Look at where he's headed to. Verse 37, uh, verse 2. It says that Joseph brought a bad report about them. The Hebrew literally says false, misleading, a lie. Joseph is becoming a liar, just like... His father. Joseph becoming a liar just like his father. We have a kid who's turning into a liar. And what about those dreams? Do you remember the meaning of the dreams? The meaning of the dreams is clear. It's that his brothers and his mom and dad were at some point going to bow down to Joseph. The dream, by the way, is absolutely ridiculous according to the social customs of the day. Asian folks again, this is like you and me going to our dads and saying, I had a dream. What was the dream? I dreamt that you're going to bow down to me. It was absolutely ridiculous. And by the way, the way that Joseph told it was absolutely demeaning. Here's the thing, though. If you have a dream and the Bible says his brothers hated him for it, and then you have another dream, what do you do? What do you do? You? You keep it to yourself. What does Joseph do? He says, Listen, you got to get this picture of Joseph, okay? I know we have this, you know, Bible carry. Joseph has this dream, and he says, "Oh, this is a cool dream." He tells his family, and they say, "We hate your guts." He sleeps. He has another dream. He says, "Oh, I got to tell him again." <laughs> Joseph, not just a liar, Joseph is becoming a spoiled, rotten, arrogant, egomaniac. And by the way this is the guy that God is going to use to save his family and the entire messianic line to continue? Uh, what about the, his brothers? You see, you see his brothers? Uh, well, the Hebrew repeats some things. It's more than once. It's, it's done for emphasis. It says three times between verses 4 to 8 that the brothers hated him. Hated him. Hated him. Hatred is growing in his brothers. Hatred that could turn them into murderers, even of their own flesh and blood. What's happening to this family? Volcanic eruption waiting to happen. There's brokenness and sin underneath that can destroy this entire family. I want to pause here for a moment and... and 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 talk a couple of things before we look at the rest of the story. And I just put up this principle up here. And this is incredibly important for me to say and remind all of us this morning. And by the way, for me telling you the story of Joseph the way I did, it wasn't for exaggeration, it's to remind us that Christianity is about religion, it's about the gospel of grace. How many of you guys romanticized these stories and said, and we've grew up sermons hearing, we need to be like Joseph. We need to be like Jacob. We need to be like these Bible heroes and Bible stories, and we need to emulate them. And yet, please do me a favor. When you look at your Bibles carefully, there's not a page in the Bible that doesn't talk about the difference between religion and the gospel. Because religion says, here are the rules for rightful living. Here are the rules for rightful living. Here are the heroes. Here are the role models of how you need to live in order for God to bless you. The problem for me is when I read my Bible carefully, there aren't any heroes. There aren't any role models. Look at this story carefully. They're all messed up, all broken, full of flaws and human weaknesses, just like the rest of us. Look at this story. Jacob, hello, needs a seminar on parenting. Jacob, you don't love one child more than your others? That's just bad parenting. And furthermore, let everybody know it. You know what Joseph did? The richly ornamented robe, we think multicolored. It's not a multicolored coat. It's a very expensive coat. In other words, Jacob lavished money on Joseph. He just lavished money on Joseph. Joseph, becoming a liar and egomaniac. His brothers, they're haters. (laughs) In the true sense of the word. If you grew up, and the reason why you didn't go to church is, you go back to church is because your perspective of Christianity, listen, is the Christianity is a Christian his perspective. Of Christianity is there are these godly men, role models, and characters, and I need to be like them. I need to emulate them because that's who God blesses. I want you to know that's religion, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says this, it's not about the kind of life that you live and the moral exemplary things that you do, it's about how God breaks into your life despite your flaws, despite your weaknesses, and despite and in spite of you. That's good for like four of us. That's great news for like four of us. That's great news for like four of us. Because you know what? If your perspective towards Christianity is, I need to be a good, moral, decent human being in order for God to bless me, let's all fold this thing and go home. But if the message of Christianity is, despite your flawed character, despite your messed up family system, despite the fact that you are a lying egomaniac, God's grace can break into your life and change you and heal you in ways that you otherwise not do to yourself. What if that was the message of Christianity? And it is. This is why this is great news. You and I need to read our whole Bibles differently. Instead of looking and saying, what are the moral lessons that we can learn from Joseph? There aren't any. What are the moral lessons we can learn from Jacob? There aren't any. What are the moral lessons? The message of Christianity is God's grace is sufficient enough for the most broken, flawed human beings. And his grace is sufficient enough to break into your life despite you, in spite of you. That's the message of Christianity. That's why when Jesus comes along, Jesus doesn't say, now emulate Jesus. Isn't he a great example? So God could love you and bless you. Jesus says, you can't emulate, follow, even if you tried with all of your heart, might, and soul. Because you couldn't live the life you need to live, I live that life for you. And I died the death for you, that you deserve to die for failing to live the life you should have lived. And when you receive Christ, it's not about living a moral exemplary life. It's not about doing the right things. It's not about the fact that you act right. It's about the fact that in Christ, God sees us as righteous, as holy, as forgiven, as reading. That's great news. Not a single page in the Bible, if you're not a Christian or you've been a Christian that's been turned off by Christianity because the message you thought was religion, do right, act right, and so on and so forth, and God will bless you. The message of Christianity is the unfolding, revealing by God of his salvation into the world. Is this good news to anybody this morning? That means, that means, see, this is the reason why, can I just tell you guys something? This is one of the reasons why after service, types of people that come up and say, thank you for speaking to me, thank you for saying what you said, are the people who've made a mess of their lives, are people who've got deep-seated sins and issues that they know they can't overcome on their own, are people that society might have given up on because they understand the message of Christianity better than many of us. No matter how badly you screw up your life at the beginning, no matter how horrible mistakes you've made in your life, you can never write off God from the final script. God could take any raw material and make it fit. For a king. That's amazing to me. God could take any messed up, jacked up life and say, you don't understand. I don't have some plan B for your life. Your plan and my plan for your life hasn't changed. Kevin, is this good news? Yes, it is. Secondly, what do we learn from this? That you need community to experience healing from brokenness. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this, but I just. I need to mention this. You need community to experience healing from brokenness. It's funny, you know. I, I'm on the other end of this now. Um, during Christmas, my, my 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 parents and 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 aunt and others came to my house. And and when they came into my house, spent Christmas with, they walked through the door and they saw Parker. And you know what they said to Parker? This is what I got a lot when I was growing up. They said, Jesus said, Parker, you look just like your dad. Sophie, you look just like your... Now, here's the thing. See, we, we, uh, those of us that grow up American, Western, we, in the West, we hate hearing that, you know? We hate hearing that because the bottom line truth is this. We're not a product of our individual choices and decisions alone. We are a product of who? Our families. So I have these visions, you know. When I'm 60, I'm gonna be wearing like short shorts, black socks, hyped up to my knees, and like white gym shoes. You know what I mean? Walking on, think I'm so cool, just like my dad. Um, <laughs> and shorts hyped up to here, by the way. You know, like it fits right here. I go. I said to dad, I said, "Dad, is that comfortable?" He's like, "Oh, it's really comfortable. It's really comfortable." Listen, here's the, here's the truth, Here's the truth, and I want you to embrace, and, and I'm going to spend a whole lot of time. If community is what messed you up, community is what will heal you. You don't get into troubles just by individual decisions and choices alone. You don't get to the situation. You think you, you're like, you know what? No, no, no. You don't understand. Me, my family didn't influence me. I did everything possible not to be like my family. Precisely, Your family's influenced you to not want to be anything like your family. Whether it be things done by you or things done to you, you are not a product of just your individual choice and decision alone. You are a product of relationships and community. And if that's the case, how can you experience healing alone? If community is what messed you up, community is what will heal you. This is why for me, it's heartbreaking when I'm sitting in my office and somebody comes in and they've got enormous issues, huge things, addictions and just enormous issues with their pride and so on and so forth. And they share their hearts out and and they're crying, bawling their eyes out. And I look at them and I go, does anybody else know about this? And they say, no. You cannot experience healing from your wounds and issues alone. You need community. Do you ever think about this? Isn't this why God invites us into a relationship with him? Relationship. It's not about sort of moral laws and dictates, and we kind of do it, and God blesses us, and we change it from God says, I want you to enter into community, community with me. And by the way, what happens in the community is the same thing that happens when we're in our community. Number one, it is almost impossible for us to see our flaws by ourselves. True? It is, oh, anybody here so enlightened that you can see your flaws by yourself? No. I need my wife who lovingly, when I walk out, grabs my hands and says, The world doesn't revolve around you. Okay? <laughs> Thank you, honey. And may I have another, right? (laughs) Can I just tell you something? I just joke about this. Do you know how powerful that is to me to have people who love me enough to just to remind me of that truth? The world does not revolve around you. Do you have anybody in your life that reminds you the world doesn't revolve around you? Because so many of our flaws and issues come out of that. Not only that. But not only are they speaking truth, but what does community do? They come around though and say, but I'm not giving up on you. I'm not going to let you go. But I messed up. I'm going to forgive you. I don't deserve your love. I'm going to love you anyway. This is what God invites us into, community with him. To show us our weaknesses and our flaws and issues that we could never see. But at the same time, in the context of community, God comes along and says, hey. I'm not giving up on you. I love you unconditionally. There's forgiveness. There's redemption. Community is what messed you up. Community alone is what will heal you. Today, if you're sitting here, do you have a group of people that you are doing life with? If you don't, and you expect to experience healing and transformation, alone with God, me and God, community is what messed you up. Community is what will heal you. Let's keep going. Third, and now we come into this in and through God working in us. God is at work through coincidences. I want you to pay attention to this text. I want you to pay attention to this, and I want you to just think for a moment and look about all the things that needed to happen exactly the way they needed to happen in order for, in order for red, uh, uh, redemption and salvation to come. You and I just read this story and go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, Joseph just happened to, you know, send, uh, Jacob just happened to send Joseph to check on his brothers. And and by the way, so Joseph happens to go to to check on the brothers. Oh, no, by the way, he happens to go there and realizes, oh, the brothers have moved on. And Joseph would never be able to know where the brothers have moved on to. A place called Dothan, unless there was some random stranger. Yeah, a stranger who's kind of hanging out. Hey, who are you? I'm Joseph. I'm looking for, oh, yeah, yeah, your brothers, they went to Dothan. So he happens to run into them, they go to Dothan. So in Dothan, his brothers are talking, they're going, We're going to kill him. And, and Judah happens to go, Why kill him? Let's just beat him up and throw him into the cistern. Because you know that's better. So they do that. And by the way, did you notice? They do this and they're eating dinner. Hatred. Hatred. They're calloused to what's going on, Joseph. And oh, by the way, so as they're eating dinner, a merchant. Oh, by the way, from Egypt, you know, the place where the famine's going to hit, comes along. And and they just happened to meet. And coincidentally, uh, Joseph was sold to them for 20 pieces of silver. And Joseph happened. The list of coincidences that needed to happen exactly in the way they happened to our eyes go, well, of course, you know what this means? Every single thing that happens in Joseph's life, the tragic things, the hard things, the painful things, and even the evil things unto him by his brothers needed to happen exactly in the order they did or else everybody in the story dies. Everybody in the story dies because unbeknownst to them, years later, a famine is coming to Egypt. Egypt. And for seven years, it's going to be seven years of prosperity, but seven years of famine that's going to destroy that entire region. And Joseph has to be put in a place where he could be in position to save, not just his family, not just Egypt, but that entire region from devastation. Do you really believe that there are no such things as coincidences in the larger plan of God? You know what's powerful to me about this story? God never does anything miraculous. <laughs> Did you hear me? That's the thing that I love about this story about Joseph. And Esther, by the way. Book of Esther, another book I really love. Because there are no lightning, thunder, I'm God. Joseph, you're going to be sold in slavery, but it's going to result in saving many lives years down the line. There's no God speaking in theophany. God is, shh, shh, shh. God is silent. All we see is God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. God doesn't appear in lightning thunder. God doesn't do anything miraculous. God is hardly mentioned. And yet, even in the midst of it all, God was working the, even the minutest of details in the exact order they need to happen for Joseph to wind up as the second most powerful man to save his people. God's silence is not absent. God's hiddenness is not abandonment. That's the reason why we can't say, God, if you love me, why this? God's redeeming love for you is completely compatible with hard things, with tragic things, with difficult things. God's redeeming love for you is completely compatible with disappointments happening in your life. God's redeeming love for you in the seeming silence of God, God's redeeming love for you in the seeming abandonment of God, God's redeeming love for you remains consistent, faithful for His glory, for our good. And the saving of many lives. The perfect example is Joseph. Verses 22 to 23, it says that they stripped the robe. The word used in Hebrew, actually, is the word used to skin an animal. They ripped it off his back. And by the way, the word threw, threw in Hebrew, into the cistern, literally means to dump a dead body. It was a word that was used to denote abandonment under death. And we also know in chapter 42, when you read the rest of the story, that Joseph cried out in the cistern. He's in the cistern and he's shouting, he's crying out, God, hell, where is it? Don't do this to me. He's shouting from the top of his lungs and the bottom of the cistern. He's been stripped. He has been beaten. He is screaming for his life in the bottom of the cistern. And yet, and yet, Can I just push this even further, just to grow the tension a little bit more? There's another thing that happens in Dothan, years down the line. In 2 Kings chapter 6, you're going to turn your Bibles. Let me tell you what happens in Dothan way, many, many, many years down the line. It's a story about the prophet Elisha. Elisha is now in the city of Dothan, and Dothan is now a big city. Elisha is being chased by enemies of another nation. Elisha is being chased and his life is in danger. Elisha's life hangs in the balance. And Elisha cries out to God and says, God, help me, save me, God, intervene. And you know what God does? God sends a chariot of lightning and angels. Same Bible, same God, same city. In one hand, where are you? Help me. Seeming silence. Where are you? Help me. Angelic beings and chariots of fire. And yet God was with both people in both places at the same time. I've been asked this question. Why? 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 Here's just my opinion, and I'm gonna throw it out there for those of you that resonate with this and others don't. Why does God do that? Elisha's was a simple salvation, he needed to be physically delivered. Joseph's salvation was a complex spiritual salvation. What do I mean? Joseph didn't just need to be delivered physically. He needed to be delivered and saved from his pride, from his arrogance, from his deceit. Listen, listen. That means if Joseph had been saved and delivered from what he wanted salvation and deliverance from, at that moment, physical salvation, then he would not have been, he would not have been put in position. He would never have been put in position to do what he does. Does that make sense? I thought about that. I thought about why. Some of us going, God, interruptions. Why me? Why this? Why this time? I don't see other people going through it. I don't see other people going through this long. Why this and why me? And maybe it's because God is saying to us, if you are delivered from what you need to be delivered from, there is a greater salvation for you that needs to happen in order for you to be put in position where it will result in greater glory, greater good." And saving him many lives. And I found this passage in Genesis 45. Because one of the most remarkable things about this story is the story of the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. One of the most moving things in this story, you guys. One of the most moving things is, finally, these brothers, uh, because of famine, go to Egypt. And they're they're in front of Joseph. Because Joseph is in charge of handing out grain. And they have no idea that it's Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. And there's this kind of comical interplay where joseph kind of messes with them so on and so forth but at some point joseph reveals his identity and his brothers are freaking out they're freaking out because they realize you have the power to take our lives with the dime with the snap of your finger and this is what joseph who was stripped who was beaten who was thrown into a cistern and abandoned to die says genesis 45 verse 4 i am your brother joseph the one you sold into Egypt. Now don't be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because, and pay attention to the number of times he says, God, that it was was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, God said, not you, not you, not your evil scheming ways, not your hatred, not your jealousy. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you realize that Joseph had to go on this journey in order to be truly saved? Not just salvation from physical deliverance, but truly saved from his pride, from his ego, from his self-centered, selfish ways. If Joseph isn't saved from his pride, his arrogance, is deceit, his brothers die, his family dies, his father dies. Joseph actually had to be lost in order to be saved. Joseph actually had to be lost in order to be saved because if he had been saved from what he wanted deliverance from, he would have been utterly lost later on. And his family dies. So here's the fourth principle and put it up there know and not know what God is doing. That's helpful application isn't it? <laughs> no and not no as much as possible, the story reminds us, and you're in the midst of the interruption, and the interruptions come crashing into your life. Know and not know what God is doing. Don't look at your circumstances alone and see if you can accurately determine whether God is there at work in your life. You cannot, I cannot accurately measure God's activity in our lives just by looking at our circumstances alone, because our circumstances would scream at us, God is not there, God is not present, God is not with you, God is not about salvation, and Yet, we have come to realize as we look at the character of God that my responsibility is to know but also not know what God is doing. And that means that in the midst of that, when I don't know, when I can't fathom, when I can't understand, I lean into him. I lean into him. I lean into him. And I trust that despite the circumstances that God is at work. That God was just as caring for Joseph as he was for Elisha. That God is just as loving, just as at work in Joseph's life as is in Elisha's life, in his hiddenness, in his silence. In a seeming absence as he was in Elisha's life with all the dramatic action. How strong would we be? I just need to say this. How strong would we be, church? How strong would you be? How strong would would I be if we anchored our foundation, if our anchored our faith, if we anchored our soul in this unchanging belief that God will not be stopped by interruptions, that God cannot stop himself from doing what he desires to do, no evil circumstances, nothing can stop God from doing what he desires to do. And that I can humbly come and say, God, there's some things that I know and there's some things I don't know. But I'm going to lean into you. I'm going to lean into you. I'm going to lean into you. When you and I go into interruptions, we have a choice. We really do. We can bail out on God and bail out on faith and say, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why this is happening. And if if I want it to stop because I just don't understand or care, or in that moment we can do something else. It's like, I might not know what's going on, but I do know God. And I know that no interruptions can stop God from fulfilling his will and his purpose in my life. I know that God is not the cause of cruelty. God is not the cause of evil. God is not the cause of suffering. And yet God is powerful enough that he can overrule it, he can overwhelm it, and he can weave even that to result in good for his people, glory for himself and saving of many lives. Amen? That our God is powerful, that regardless of the interruptions that come, that our God, our God, our God, is at work. If you're wondering why I'm closing my eyes so much while I preach this morning, because I need to remind myself, so I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind. It's not because I'm avoiding you. I'm preaching to myself. I wasn't gonna share this, but I need to share this with some of you. There's one other small insight before I finish this off, and, and whoever's playing keys can come on up. Um, oh, Carlton! This story reminds me that God will never let His dreams for your glory and for His will die. You know what I hear a lot in my office, a lot of times I I hear people come in, and this is what I hear, I hear people go, Peter, God's given me a dream, God's given me a vision, God's given me a picture of what he wants to do in my life, and it's an amazing thing, but I've done this, I've done that, interruptions, failures, anybody, anybody? I'm speaking to you this morning. All of a sudden the mic is a lot louder. I'm speaking to you this morning because my message to you is before I talk about Jesus as we end God will never let his dream for you die and here's the thing when you're in the midst of this interruption that dream seems crazy other people think you're crazy other people are going to go what What are you thinking are you serious that to you ah." Uh. You might even look at your circumstances and go, God, how the heck am I going to go out through this? God, how the heck are you going to make this for your glory and your dreams for me die your dreams for me live? How are you going to do this? And yet God comes along and says, when I'm in the midst of it, it may seem foolish to you and to other people. And when I'm in the midst of it, it may seem to you like I've, been ab- I've abandoned you. But God will never let his dream for you die. He will never let his dream for you die. It's unchanging. And God says, dream for your glory, for my glory, and saving up many lives. Never let it die. Never. You can't jack up God's plan for your life. I don't care how hard you try. That's the point. I want to end with Jesus. Because if, you, if you're sitting there going, all these interruptions, and I'm going through this painful thing, where do I find the strength? Where do I find the energy? Peter, I understand all these principles and fine, blah, 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 but I'm in the midst of this, and I need strength. I need strength to get through this. And my encouragement to you, scripture is look to the ultimate Joseph because years later there was another man who would come along who would be betrayed by his brothers years later another guy came along and oh by the way he was sold for 30 pieces of silver Years down the line, another man came along, and they stripped him and beat him. His name? same as Jesus. big difference between Jesus and Joseph, though, is this: Joseph involuntarily went on this journey so that he could save one family. Jesus, the Son of God, lays down His glory and willingly and voluntarily goes on this journey of coming to earth for the salvation of all people. And the pit that this Joseph, Jesus, is thrown into is a much deeper pit. It's a much darker pit. It's a much more overwhelming pit because when Jesus fell into this pit, He, just like Joseph, cried out, God! My God, my God, my God, my God. And yet he was abandoned by his father. And yet he was rejected by his father. And yet he didn't experience deliverance from his father. He's saying, why is that? Because we would never be abandoned. Because so that we would never, we would never be rejected. Because so that we would be unconditionally loved. So that when we find ourselves in this pit, crying out to God, God, I know that you're in this. I know that you're going through this, God. But I just need to know you are with me. We have the assurance of knowing that our Jesus, our Joseph, came along and willingly went into the pit. Gave his life. So that when the bottom of our souls cry out, are you abandoning me? Jesus says, look at the cross. I will never abandon you. Have you forgotten about me? It's dark in here. Jesus Christ says, I have never forgotten about you. Did you forget about your love for me? Do you still love me? when we cry out from the pit we have a savior who points to the cross and says so that you would never ever experience alienation from your father I did that for you where do you get strength where do I get strength in the midst of this We look to the cross and we say, God, You pray with me? I know that I went a little long and I apologize. But man, I really, really need your prayer. And I know that there are other people in this church that need your prayer. There are other people like me in this church who need to be reminded this morning. We don't need to be given answers to why. Why? We wrestle with that for all of eternity. But man, there are some people in this church that are just going through some major life interruptions that just need somebody to say, as Jesus Christ found himself in the pit with us, he is with you. So this morning, we haven't done this in a while, but I did i would like to invite anybody anybody in this church and you were here last sunday and this sunday and you just need some prayer man you just need some prayer and saying you know what peter those are great theological truths to just wrestle with but you know what i i need to see jesus i need to see jesus i need to see jesus i need jesus Will you come on up? Will you just come and join me up here? I'm just going to kneel right here on the front part of the sanctuary floor. And I'm just going to have some of our church brothers and sisters just come and pray with us and pray for us. Anybody going through a life in rush? Anybody going through just just need to remind reminded this morning of where he is and what he has done for you and for me. Will you just come on up? and just join me we're just going to kneel right here prostrate right here in front of the cross in front of the sanctuary in front of the stage area we're just going to kneel before our God and just cry out to our God just going to cry out to our God (laughs) anybody else? this is it this is it come on up and join me and join us up here. Join me and join us up here. We're just going to have some other people come down a little bit later and just pray for us, but come on up and join us up here. Come on us and just join us up here. I'm going to wait until everybody that wants to be up here has come up. Anybody else? Anybody else? Please come on up and join us. I need some of you guys that are sitting out there and just being prompted by the Spirit to just come and say, you know what? I'm going to be Christ's hands and feet this morning. I'm just going to minister to somebody. Come on up. Find somebody. Come on up. Find somebody to put your hands on. Find somebody to put your arm around. Find somebody to pray with and pray for. Come on up. Come on up. for those of you that are praying up here I want to encourage you to continue to pray this morning as we leave when I thought about how I wanted to end this service, this didn't know how it was going to end I wanted to make sure that we walked out with the reminder that would anchor us of who our God is despite the circumstance despite anything else that may be happening an unchangeable truth about our God So I want us to sing this hymn together, church. And as we sing it, that this will be a proclamation, a proclamation of not just what we've heard, but a proclamation of our deep abiding faith in these truths. We'll sing this together. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of a journey. Hallelujah. We all stand together. God, we want to leave today and a ring, a note of assurance of our faith. God, we thank you that your word tells us that even though we are faithless, that you are faithful. What an amazing, amazing truth to behold. As we leave this place, new community, child of God, beloved son and daughter of God. Be people that would expect and embrace life interruptions to know that God has a dream for you. God has a vision for you. God has a thing for you to accomplish, to glorify himself, make you more like Jesus, and to save many lives. When it comes, look to him, your Joseph, who went before you. And in confident assurance, live your life for his kingdom. Both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week. Have a great week. Great is thy faithfulness.